This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. This podcast is sponsored by viewers like you on Patreon through PayPal donations with YouTube memberships and Twitch subscriptions. To support the show, go to patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member by clicking the join button underneath any one of our videos on YouTube. Members get early access to most videos and get to participate in monthly Zoom hangouts with Mike. Here's the biggest stories we talked about this week on The Humanist Report. Enjoy the show. But I can't ask our supporters to volunteer their time and donate their resources if we don't have a clear path to victory. Accordingly, I am today suspending my campaign. Winston Churchill once remarked that success is not final, failure is not fatal, it is the courage to continue that counts. You heard that right. The campaign of the candidate once hailed as the future is now defunct. Bottom. Ron DeSantis has dropped out of the 2024 presidential race and endorsed Donald Trump like the bootlicking cuck that he is. And he managed to embarrass himself just one last time by misquoting Winston Churchill. Now, it's not the fake quote that makes this so funny. What makes it especially hilarious is that the quote that he used is actually attributed to Bud Light. As Newsweek explains, a 1939 edition of Life magazine found on Google Books shows the ad from Budweiser, which includes includes the quote used by DeSantis on Sunday. Newsweek reached out to DeSantis's campaign via email for further comment. The accidental use of the quote by DeSantis comes after he repeatedly criticized Bud Light and Budweiser's parent company Anheuser-Busch after they partnered with Dylan Mulvaney, a transgender influencer and activist. Oh, we know Newsweek. We know. How ironic. I feel like this is the universe's way of humiliating DeSantis just one last time. Not like he really needed any help, because if you'll recall, this campaign was a disaster from the very beginning. And this is because he decided for some reason to launch his campaign during a Twitter Spaces event. Let's look back at how bad that was. So they just keep crashing, huh? Yeah, I think we've got <laughs> a, just a massive number of people online, so it's... Um Servers are straining somewhat. Now it's quiet. Elon is sitting next to me. And we, want, and we want to welcome you to this historic Twitter Spaces event and more broadly a first in the history of social media. Well, I am running for president of the United States to lead our great American comeback. That is how Ron DeSantis chose to launch his presidential campaign. I mean, even if everything went smoothly, it'd still be a bizarre choice, but it did not go smoothly. And that kind of set the tone for the entire campaign. And I say this because he became a laughingstock for a number of reasons really quickly. And typically presidential candidates, they want to go viral. But DeSantis went viral multiple times, albeit for all the wrong reasons. Case in point. And I will not let you down. See, humans, I too have emotions. <laughs> just a lot of people speculated that like that was one of his aides telling him that he needs to smile more and then him just like not knowing how to do that in a really organic way. So just trying to shoehorn in a smile. And that's that's the result. It's just it's beautiful. Not his face, but the result. 
the overall essence of that was beautiful, just hilarious. But while most people probably remember that as the most humiliating moment for DeSantis, I actually think that this moment takes the cake. Are you the type of person, like I have people around me that love to say, hey, Pat, you got something between your teeth. These are the annoying people in your life, right? Hey, Pat, pull your zipper up. You know, hey, Pat, do this. Hey, pull one of your socks is lower than the other one. I'm sure your marketing team points out how they're trying to troll you in the marketplace. Okay, I'm sure they're doing that. Can you bring this one clip? I know you were on, uh, 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 what do you call it, on, uh, uh, what was it, Bill Maher, and Bill Maher talked about the boots. I've seen you walk with these boots. Go ahead and play this clip. This on TikTok went viral. It doesn't have a million views. It doesn't have, you know, 10 million views. This thing's got 1.2 million likes. And and some people are wondering. How, what how, are they? I don't even, under, so I haven't what, seen that. What there's, they've not shown this to you. Okay, no. what they're trying to say with this is that in your boots, you have heels. No, no, no. That's yeah, what they're no, trying those, to say. those are just standard off the rack um, Lucchese, um, uh, how, how Lucchese books. How tall are you, Governor? How tall 5'11". Are you? 5'11"? Okay. Why don't you wear tennis shoes and dress shoes? Brutal. Just absolutely brutal. And the irony here is that the man who everyone is accusing of wearing high heels is the same man who banned drag in Florida. And to add another layer to the cringe, he is presumably wearing high heels because he is insecure about his height. It's just so humiliating. Like, this is actual cringe where you feel firsthand embarrassment for somebody else. But these embarrassing moments that kept coming were all self-inflicted. Remember, there was the report about him eating pudding with his fingers, which was pounced on by Donald Trump's teen, who then subsequently turned that report into an ad, not to mention his beef with Disney that blew up in his face in the middle of his campaign last year. But aside from all of the embarrassing moments, he also made a lot of oopsies during his campaign. And to be clear, when I say oopsie, I mean go for Nazi to the layperson. For example, he was forced to fire a staffer who made a video of him using Nazi imagery. His team also released ads bragging about his fascist policies that he produced that went viral because of how scathing the criticism was that he chose to boost. And I was in some of these ads, literally. Just produced some of the harshest, most draconian laws that literally threaten trans existence. What's your reaction to that video? You know, it really feels like we're living in the twilight zone sometimes, not just because it's very bizarre to see yourself in an ad for a presidential candidate, but because the presidential candidate is taking clips where people are saying he's a bad person and then they're boosting those. They're saying, look, this is what they're saying about him. Vote for him. He's a bad person. See what? That is the dumbest thing imaginable. Now, I think that Tim Miller of The Bulwark put it best when explaining the absurdity of these viral ads. He writes, given the context, the inclusion of Figueredo's line about how DeSantis's policies literally threaten trans existence is deeply disturbing. That this line would make it into a product put out by one of the leading contenders for the presidency is a scandal. It ought to create a total and complete repudiation from the campaign just to have any hope of surviving. Say what you will about Mitt Romney's 47% gaffe, it pales in comparison to suggesting that you want to pass laws that literally threaten the existence of a marginalized class of Americans like it's a good thing. And I completely agree with that. I mean, imagine how the right would react if a Democratic candidate, for example, featured a critic in an ad who accused them of threatening the existence of Christianity with their policies as if that were a good thing. They would lose their minds. But when it comes to trans people, DeSantis is basically boasting about the fact that he's a monster and he wants to own it. 
but that type of language, like this cruelty is not going to resonate with people outside of Florida, or it's not going to work as well as it does in Florida. And part of the reason why he was successful in Florida is because in his own state, he can have this perfectly controlled, curated image where the media and the government in that state is on his side. But I mean, the second that you leave Florida, this image that you try to project, it falls apart. And to make matters worse, he shit the bed entirely and ran a terrible campaign. So that's why everything kind of crumbled around him. Now, what's even more astonishing is the fact that the media wanted to prop up DeSantis at the start because even though liberal pundits, for example, might not necessarily like him, they prefer him to Trump because they view him as less dangerous than Trump, even though I disagree with that. But with that in mind, you would think that there would be some level of trepidation from liberal pundits, at least, after he announced the end of his campaign. But not really. They were basically like, yeah, this guy fucking sucks. And their insight into why he lost was actually spot on. So I want to give you a couple of examples here. The political obituary is almost too easy to write. He was a bad candidate. He had a lousy message and a truly terrible campaign. But maybe it wouldn't have made any difference because this says so much about the Republican Party as well. He calculated that if he moved to the right of Donald Trump on the cultural issues, that somehow he could be Trumpism without Trump. But the problem is the Republican yeah. base wanted mm -hmm. Trump. They wanted the show. You, you, you have a choice. You have to pick a lane. And Donald Trump had the MAGA lane, had the extreme MAGA lane. And so here you had Fat Elvis, 77, and you had Ron DeSantis saying, I'm going to go to Vegas and I'm going to fill that lane. Right? Why? Why? Like, if you can't, if, if, if that lane's already filled, then do the Beatles. If you can't do the Beatles, do Dylan. If you can't do the Dylan, be fifth, fifth dimension. Be anybody, but don't try to be Fat Elvis. They got that on the strip. A lot of it. They got a lot of it. <laughs> uh, you know, Ron DeSantis spent a lot of time in the run-up to the primaries and caucuses getting underway uh, going after wokeism. Uh, going after targets yep. like Walt Disney. And at the end, he went from Space Mountain to It's a Small World. I mean, it just did not work. And I wonder, did, does that message really just not resonate with Republicans as much as maybe folks think on social media and uh, the sort of towel-snapping right. uh, corners of, of the far right? It just, it just doesn't resonate with voters. No, that, that, that's exactly right, especially here in New Hampshire. I mean, at the end of the day, we're the live free or die state. You know, we like government to be smaller and out of the way, let businesses run themselves. Um, and, and that was what was always fascinating to me is that, um, you know, I think Ron DeSantis and his team early on may have misread the room. They kind of thought their support was going to come from the hardest of hardcore Trump supporters, when in reality, he was picking up uh, you know, a lot of the non-Trump supporters, uh, the non-Trump voters, yeah. folks who were a little bit more centrist or even center right. Uh, and yet he was still moving to the right to try to outmaneuver Donald Trump ideologically for Iowa. You know, they made this miscalculation early on in the campaign that somehow they had to, you know, deal a death blow to Donald Trump in Iowa, which is a caucus state, low turnout affair the hardest of hardcore party activists participate in it. And so in order to try to even have a chance there, they had to move to the right, which really killed all of his appeal to the independent voters and then moderate Republican voters he would need in a state like New Hampshire, where you do have a plethora of yeah. other uh, voters to target that aren't so committed to supporting Donald Trump. And I'll just add one, one other quick thing. The other thing we don't talk about enough, 
is that uh, Ron DeSantis tried to say, I am Trump without the drama and that I can beat Joe Biden. He'll lose to Joe Biden. Well, the electability argument went out the window when poll after poll starts showing that Trump was leading Biden in a lot of these key swing states. Uh, a lot of voters said, well, if that's the case, I'm not going to go with new Coke. I'm just going to go with the original because I seem to like that enough. And that guy, I think, can win. Yeah, I mean, I think that everything they're saying here is perfectly reasonable. And I think it's funny to see mainstream media drag somebody who was really appealing to the mainstream because he was this alternative to Trump. But to this point that he tried to be Trump without the baggage, well, the editorial board of the Miami Herald in his home state obviously explained specifically why he failed after being poised to be the person that was supposed to save the GOP from Trump. They write, it's not just that he was steamrolled by Donald Trump. DeSantis never appeared to want to save the GOP. He was more interested in making it a more ravenous, angrier, and intolerant party. That worked for Trump, but didn't work for the governor with all the charisma of burned toast goddamn they are dragging the shit out of him but it's well deserved now it's not just that he came off as inauthentic and lacked charisma he also just ran a bad campaign full stop or as politico put it his campaign team ran the worst campaign in history, and they argue, start with an indisputable fact. At the beginning of 2023, Governor Ron DeSantis was in first place, ahead of former President Donald Trump. Then, acknowledged that the DeSantis campaign and Super PAC raised more money than any other campaign, including that of the former presidents. Many in the GOP billionaire class gushed over DeSantis, promising to spend whatever it would take to vanquish the former president. What could go wrong? Well, everything. And the article goes on to talk about his lack of strategy and whatnot, but this paragraph in particular that explains why the hype died down is especially ruthless, and I want to read it to you. Quote, the candidate did not match the hype. He was less than advertised. In person, he was a diminutive politician. The campaign introduced him to the nation as a bright but socially awkward introvert, a nerd who did not enjoy people, which was a problem since voters tend to be people. Now, in my opinion, it's not just that he's socially awkward and introverted because there are many people who I know even who are socially awkward and introverted who don't come off the way that Ron DeSantis comes off. In my opinion, not to play armchair psychiatrist here, but I'm going to do it anyway. He comes off as a sociopath, if not outright psychopathic. And I'm not saying that to be hyperbolic. I mean, I think he literally might be a psychopath. I think that it's reflected in not just his behavior and his personality, but in his priorities and policies as well. It's not just that he has no regard for the pain and suffering that he inflicts on people in his state, but he seemingly relishes in it. And this makes him a bad salesperson for fascism because in order to win over the normies, which is the goal if you want to be president, fascists have to convince the masses that the stakes are much greater and there's some sort of an existential threat that they have to oppose. And he just didn't construct that narrative or any narrative at all, nor did he have the ability to sell it even if he wanted to, even if he had a narrative. So Americans just kind of saw him as this weird-ass dude who was kind of annoyed by wokeism. And even if maybe they thought that wokeism was annoying too, well, he's not the guy who they went with. Donald Trump had the entire base on lock and normies went with Nikki Haley instead, seemingly, in the Republican side, if you consider any Republican to be a normie at this point, which is debatable. But even though he couldn't win over Americans, he did win over one person. Before we begin, I'd like to take time to congratulate Ron DeSantis and, of course, a really terrific person who had gotten to know his wife, Casey, for having run a great campaign for president. He did. He ran a 
a really good campaign, I will tell you. It's not easy. They think it's easy doing this stuff, right? It's not easy. But as you know, he left the campaign trail today at 3 p.m., and in so doing, he was very gracious, and he endorsed me, so I appreciate it. He did it. He managed to win back daddy's approval, and because he kissed the ring, big things are happening. For example, Trump made this announcement to reward Ron for being a good boy. He just said, will I be using the name Ron DeSanctimonious? I said, that name is officially retired. And there it is. Look, it may seem trivial to the rest of us who aren't in this cult, but Trump giving DeSantis the opportunity to redeem himself after being insufficiently loyal to him by running against him gives him the opportunity to still have a career. Without Trump's blessing, that might not be a possibility. He might lose his next reelection in Florida. Now, this is going to help him with the right, right? Maybe in the future, Trump giving him the green light to continue to be a Republican politician might help him in a future GOP primary. But I think that he shit the bed so bad that I can't imagine any future presidential campaign not being DOA because you have to win over more than just Republican fascists. And he didn't just not do that. He made so many embarrassing mistakes that I feel like he just can't recover, right? So I'm glad his campaign is over, but as Melanie DeRigo put it, it shouldn't be because he should be forced to carry his campaign to term. Precisely, we should force him to endure the pain and humiliation even longer. Well, it seems like we have some breaking news. The results from the New Hampshire Democratic and Republican primaries are in, and the most predictable outcome is the one we got. And <laughs> the conclusion ultimately is that I, I think that this kind of seals the deal. It's going to be Biden versus Trump in November. So when it comes to the GOP primary, of course, Donald Trump won. And Nikki Haley didn't do too bad, but was it still a landslide for Donald Trump at the time that I record this video? Yeah, I'd say that. Now, look, the votes are still coming in, so it's possible that she makes up some ground. But either way, he's going to win, and then he's going to go on to win state after state after state. And it's going to be Trump. He's going to be the Republican nominee. Now, Nikki Haley has vowed to stay in the race, which I think is smart in the event he gets criminally convicted. I mean, 91 criminal charges four indictments. That's a reason to stay in. But assuming nothing extraordinary happens, he's going to be the Republican Party's nominee. Now, on the Democratic Party side, this is really interesting because, you know, there's a lot of dissatisfaction even among Democrats with Joe Biden. So they really have an opportunity here to choose someone new, especially given the fact that Joe Biden isn't even on the ballot in New Hampshire, which is so bizarre to me because this is the incumbent president and he's not on the ballot so what's happening here so let me explain so the dnc chose to change up the primaries and give south carolina the first primary but new hampshire did not like that because they have a first in the nation primary clause in their constitution to where they always get to go first so they chose to usurp the dnc and move their primary ahead of south carolina's and as a result of that joe biden wasn't on the ballot so he was running a write-in campaign here and he won the write-in campaign. Dean Phillips, he came in second. And Marianne Williamson came in a distant third. This isn't necessarily a result that is surprising. But Democrats, they very clearly are 
happy with the status quo. They're happy with Joe Biden and they're not opting for a change candidate. Part of this might just be that they still believe that Joe Biden is more electable than any other candidate, or they think that maybe if they vote against Joe Biden, that might weaken him against Donald Trump. I'm not necessarily sure, but at this point in time, Joe Biden has the most votes. He is projected to win, even though the results, you know, uh, they're not over yet, like they're still counting, but Joe Biden's going to win this, right? But when it comes to New Hampshire, I think it's very bizarre that they have this clause in their constitution that they always have to go first. It seems really entitled to me. And I say this as somebody who likes New Hampshire because I'm biased. Typically, they tend to vote for the most progressive Democrat in these Democratic Party primaries, with this being the exception since we're dealing with an incumbent. But I like New Hampshire, but it's just kind of weird that they're like, no, 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 we get to go first, okay? Nobody else gets to go before us. Why don't all of us just vote at the same time? Because see, as somebody who lives in Oregon, my primary never takes place until like months after a lot of other people have voted. And oftentimes the candidate who I wanted to vote for in these primaries has already dropped out. Like in 2020, I voted for Bernie Sanders, but he had long dropped out when I casted my vote in Oregon. So how about we all just vote at the same time? That would make a lot more sense to me. And also we wouldn't be prolonging our own suffering by dealing with extended election periods. We could vote and get on with our lives and dread the general election, right? So I, I don't get that. But I mean, Democratic Party voters are loyal to the Democratic Party. And Joe Biden is, uh, he's going to win every other primary going forward. So, you know, it's an inevitability at this point that Biden and Trump are going to face off against each other again, even if a lot of us don't want to see that, even if both of them have very high net unfavorable ratings. But, you know, even if as a leftist, you know, you can see why both of these candidates are not ideal to be extra charitable here. They at least represent their core base. And the Democratic Party is not representative of leftists. They are representative of liberals. And liberals don't have the same goals as leftists and even progressives, arguably. So that's what they're voting for. They're riding or dying with Joe Biden. They're going with genocide Joe. You know, that's how democracy works, unfortunately. It's the status quo and things won't change, but I don't think that they want it to change. So we just keep trying to do our best to um, get liberals to see why progressivism is the way to go when all of this dissatisfaction with the status quo and neoliberalism has led to the rise of fascist demagogues like Donald Trump. But I mean, when it comes to Donald Trump, I think that we have to stop pretending as if he also doesn't represent the GOP's base. Sure, you can say that Nikki Haley is taking away a sizable portion of his his uh, his votes. But I mean, the GOP base, they love fascism. Let's be honest. That's what they want. They want somebody who is a fascist demagogue. And Trump is the perfect representative of that party. He might be evil and fascistic. But he represents them. You can't say that this is an anomaly by now, right? They voted for him now in multiple elections. That's the guy they're rolling with. So it might be disappointing to people with common sense, but we're getting Trump and Biden, okay? <laughs> and it, it's so disappointing, but also I can't be that disappointed if this was something that was entirely predictable and expected, Unless anything extreme happens, like they both die because they're both over a thousand years old each, you know, they're going to be the nominees. I mean, Trump could be convicted, but still, even if he's convicted, do we really think that the base is going to turn on him? Do we really think that? I'm not going to kid myself. 
So New Hampshire, in my opinion, kind of sets everything in stone. It's it's kind of it's going to be Biden and Trump, right? Let's not fool ourselves. It's disappointing. You know, Marianne Williamson didn't run a perfect campaign, in my opinion, but I plan on voting for her if she's still in the race in Oregon, just because I don't want to cast my vote for Joe Biden in a primary when I actually have an alternative. And when it comes to Dean Phillips, I mean, I genuinely don't know why he's running because his policies are indistinguishable from Joe Biden's. He's basically a younger version of Joe Biden. So it's inconceivable to me why you would vote for Dean Phillips over Joe Biden, unless like age is your number one concern, which that is a concern to some people, I would imagine. But Dean Phillips is why I, I like I don't get it. And if you listen to him on policy, there's nothing inspiring about him. The dude's look. I'll be uh, I'll be completely frank. I think he's kind of a rube. Um, I don't think that he's very bright. He has no charisma, uh, and his policies are indistinguishable from any liberal centrist politician. So I, I just, it is weird that he's choosing to run against Biden because, you know, that type of politician would maybe do well in a Democratic Party primary where there's no incumbent. But because he's running against an incumbent, he pissed off all of the liberals who are loyal to Joe Biden. So it's a really interesting choice. But um, I just, I don't get it. I don't get it right. But that's the results. New Hampshire is, uh, it's over. And now, I think we're probably going to see both Joe Biden and Donald Trump in their respective fields just lap everyone else, you know, and now it's a question of how long will the other candidates stay in the race? And uh, that's yet to be determined, but ultimately it's going to come down to Biden and Donald Trump. Um, and that's just the unfortunate reality. We don't want to see it. It's a matchup nobody asked for, but we're all getting so... What are you going to do, right? That's American politics where disappointment is to be expected. And if we're pleasantly surprised, then uh, awesome. But don't count on that. It's always going to be the status quo and the most terrible options on the table. So, uh, yeah, onwards we go to the general election. The race to replace Dianne Feinstein in California is well underway, and they actually had their first debate last night, and uh, I watched it. And I've got to say, I am profoundly disappointed. And after looking at the polling, my disappointment then turned into confusion. And I say this because the people who performed the worst during this debate are actually polling the highest. So the top two contenders are Adam Schiff and Steve Garvey, according to this Emerson College poll released on January 18th. And they both actually gained ground since the poll was last conducted in November. And if the election were held today, they would both advance to the general, whereas the two better candidates, Katie Porter and Barbara Lee, are lagging behind both Schiff and Garvey. Now, Schiff is a corporate Democrat, Garvey is a Republican, and the two progressives in this race are Katie Porter and Barbara Lee. But if I lived in California, uh, I would vote for Barbara Lee. It's an easy question. Katie Porter might be an effective communicator with policies comparable to Lee overall, but they defer in one really important policy area, and that's Gaza. Barbara Lee has been consistent while Katie Porter has been extremely wishy-washy on this subject, though both did have better responses than Schiff and Garvey, although for them the bar is really low. But I do want to take a moment to look at how both Lee and Schiff responded to a question about Israel and Gaza. Congressmember Lee, on October 8th, less than 24 hours after that attack, you called for an immediate ceasefire. Uh, if that happens 
Now, if there is an immediate ceasefire, what's to stop Hamas from retaking control and launching another October 7th? Thank you very much uh, for that question. Yes, I called for um, a ceasefire, a permanent ceasefire. Israel deserves to live in peace with security, free from Hamas and all terrorist attacks. And I'm going to continue to condemn the horrific attacks of October 7th and work to make sure that whatever I can do to ensure that uh, the administration, as it continues this war in Gaza that is ki has killed now at 25,000 people, that is counterproductive to Israel's security. The only way Israel is going to be secure is through a permanent ceasefire. Um, no country, after having been attacked by terrorists like Israel was on October 7th, no country could refuse to defend itself. It has a duty to defend itself, and I think the United States should support Israel in defending itself. Let me, let me just say, first of all, I voted against the authorization to use military force right after the horrific attacks of 9-11. I voted against the Iraq authorization. I said then, and I'm saying now, it could spiral out of control. You see what's happening. It's escalating in the region. Barbara Lee was right then, and she's right now. And Schiff sounds exactly like the Republican on this issue, although he did sprinkle in some feigned concern for Palestinians, but made it clear he stands with Israel unequivocally as they continue to do a genocide in Gaza. And I think that Barbara Lee probably could have done a better job at defending her position, but the bottom line is that she's right on the policy substance, and she has been consistent on this issue, and she's been really good on foreign policy throughout her career. Now, when it comes to Katie Porter, however, she is trying to have it both ways. She understands the popularity of this position among the Democratic Party's base and that position being to support a ceasefire, but she doesn't want to support a ceasefire because she also supports Israel. So watch how she tries to have it both ways and ride the fence here. Congressmember Porter, uh, some critics have said you've tried to have it both ways on this. You just heard two different worldviews laid out on this. Uh, where are you and which one do you agree with? Well, I join millions of Americans um, around the country in mourning what has happened, um, the loss of Israeli lives and the loss of Palestinian lives. Um, and we need, as the United States, to be pushing for the conditions that can get us to a bilateral, durable peace. This is a very difficult situation, and the conditions on the ground in Gaza have changed as the conflict has evolved. And so I have called for a, a permanent ceasefire, and I've pushed and identified with specificity what needs to happen to bring Gaza and to bring the people of Gaza to a better future and to make sure that Israel can stay secure. So I have called for a release for all the hostages, resources to rebuild Gaza, making sure Israel is secure and a free state for Palestinians where they can thrive. So just to be clear, she's calling for a ceasefire right now. You're saying we need to do all this other stuff first, right? The parties to this conflict are Israel and Hamas. Ceasefire is not a magic word. You can't say it and make it so. But we have to push as the United States, as a world leader, for us to get to a ceasefire and to avoid another forever war. Alex, Mr. If, you, yeah. if you don't have a permanent ceasefire now, more people are going to get killed and there'll be less security that is even possible for the Israelis and for Israel in the future if we don't do this right now. And that right there is the bottom line. If you don't support a ceasefire right now, now, 
the genocide will continue. Therefore, you effectively support the continuation of the killing. Now, Katie Porter is trying to placate supporters of a ceasefire by saying she supports a ceasefire, but she implied she doesn't actually support a ceasefire right now. Instead, she supports specific conditions that will get us to a ceasefire eventually. So in essence, she doesn't support a ceasefire and she's fine with the violence continuing unless specific criteria are met. It is extremely disingenuous, and for a politician who's usually very clear and concise in her language, that right there is a major red flag to me, especially after she chummed it up with Netanyahu in 2023 after J Street sponsored a trip to Israel for her and 14 other Democrats. Jewish Insider explains, not only was the Prime Minister extremely generous both with his time and with his thoughts, but the group was really able to have an interactive dialogue with him, Porter said. Quote, I was extremely impressed with his willingness to kind of grapple with us at some of the toughest issues that Israel's facing, everything from judicial reform, i.e. this means a judicial coup that Netanyahu was trying to do and is still trying to do, uh, an issue that we're having questions and discussions about right now within the Democratic Party here in the United States, to issues about the West Bank and about settlements. But we emphasized, and I think Netanyahu emphasized back, that there's a long-term project here, which is to have a vibrant, secure Jewish Democratic State of Israel, and that in order to do that, there needs to be opportunities for the Palestinian people to have their own elected governments and governance and land Porter continued. How we get there is unclear right now, but we shouldn't let the impediments to that progress prompt us to give up on the goal given its incredible importance to Israel and to the region and to the United States. I'm sorry, but how we get there is unclear. Really, Katie? This is a smart woman. She knows that in order for a two-state solution to happen, which is what she says she supports, the occupation has to end. But she's not acknowledging that, right? She's just signaling support for long-term peace, but not pointing out the elephant in the room. But she wasn't actually there to challenge Netanyahu. She was there to play teacher's pet. Jewish Insider continues, quote, The pre-visit preparations paid off, she recalled, when the delegation, which was sponsored by J Street, met with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu in Jerusalem. Quote, it was actually funny in that there was a moment in that conversation with the Prime Minister where he was talking about Likud and LGBTQ members of Likud, and he was saying, I bet nobody knew that. Porter explained, referring to Netanyahu's political party, quote, I raised my hand and I was like, I knew, I knew, because I had gotten that additional briefing before. Before I went. Yeah, it will never cease to amaze me how gullible some liberals are, including really intelligent ones like Katie Porter. The Likud party is a far-right fascist party, but apparently all you have to do is slap a rainbow sticker on their logo and it's like a fucking invisibility cloak for fascists. Hey, Katie, if you really wanted to challenge Netanyahu, which she did not, but if you did want to challenge him, did you ask him why same-sex couples in Israel aren't allowed to get married? Or were you too busy swooning? It's just so insufferable and I can't take it. And I don't trust Katie Porter on this issue more importantly, especially after John Fetterman. I am no longer giving liberals the benefit of the doubt here when it comes to this issue. And by the way, while Katie Porter was peddling influence with Netanyahu, Barbara Lee refused to go on that trip and actually denounced his Trumpian judicial coup attempt, writing on Twitter at the time, an impartial independent judiciary is a vital cornerstone of democracy. I strongly condemn Netanyahu's efforts to politicize Israel's Supreme Court and dramatically expand settlement activity and stand in solidarity with Israelis and Palestinians working for peaceful coexistence. And as usual, Barbara Lee is correct. So if you care about Palestinian human rights, that is the candidate to support, full stop. But when you move on to other aspects of the debate, to be fair to Katie Porter, 
she did well. Arguably, she outshined Barbara Lee in a number of areas, specifically because I think she was more forceful in going after Adam Schiff and his corruption in particular. For example, take a look at how she calls out his ties to the fossil fuel industry. I think this was actually really effective. But here's the thing. Others can talk about this. Um, I prosecuted oil companies. Uh, I fought for mass transit and am known as the father of the gold line for my efforts to get mass transit built. Um, some of us have a record of actually doing things and producing for California. We do need to transition to renewable sources of energy. If we're going to get ahead of this tipping point, we need to dramatically invest in renewable energy and stop incentivizing a fossil fuel industry that is killing us and killing the planet. Move. Representative Schiff may have prosecuted big oil companies before he came to Congress, but when he got to Congress, he cashed checks from companies like BP, from fossil fuel companies. I have delivered results on climate in my few years in Congress. I have raised the rate, my legislation to raise the rate on polluters okay. when they drill on our public lands was signed into law. Real quickly, your chance to respond. Well, first of all, I gave that money to you, Katie Porter. Um, and I was. I wasn't in office and, and when you only, were taking fossil The only fuels. response I got was thank you, thank you, thank you. But look, at the end of the day, it's about what have you gotten done? Now, that wasn't the only time she was forcefully calling out his corruption, which I think is really important. And it's clear that Schiff is going to continue this legacy of Dianne Feinstein, who you might remember basically told kids to go fuck themselves when they asked her to support a Green New Deal. So Adam Schiff is saying, look, I'm a progressive all of a sudden, but also I'm going to continue Feinstein's legacy. Mm, that's not good. No, thank you. So it was important that Katie Porter went after him so directly. And I wish that Barbara Lee did the same thing, because when you are trailing in this race, it's important to attack the person who's in first place. Now, Adam Schiff is a corporate Democrat through and through. And it is astonishing to me that Californians would support someone like him when they have an opportunity to vote for an actual progressive. Adam Schiff is vocalizing support for Medicare for all now. But we all know he would never actually fight for it because he didn't when he was in office. He was aligned with Nancy Pelosi, who was against Medicare for all. And I just wish that voters would get better at distinguishing between actual progressives and phonies. Because if you look at public opinion polls, they say they support progressive policies, but then they keep voting for corporate Democrats. So there's a disconnect here. And if they truly support progressive policies, they need to address that. But compared to uh, Steve Garvey, Adam Schiff looks amazing because Steve Garvey is surging, presumably because uh, he's a former baseball star. And I say this because he's not really running on any particular policy aside from vaguely gesturing about cutting spending. And his response to the unhoused crisis was so bizarre that all of the other candidates on the stage reacted because he tried to talk about how he went up to somebody who was unhoused and he was trying to make this seem like a humanizing moment and make it seem like he was compassionate, but it had the opposite effect. Just watch. When was the last time any of you, any of you went to the, the inner city, actually walked up to the homeless as I have over these last three weeks? have gone to San Diego and Los Angeles and Sacramento. And actually, because this is part of, you know I'm not a politician, but I needed to talk to the people of the city. I needed to talk to the homeless, went up to them and touched them and listened to them. And you know what? They looked at me and they said, you're the first time anybody's come up and asked us about our life. The homeless man who spent five years on the street in Sacramento. They don't get it. When I go back to the Senate, a year from now, when I'm your next elected U.S. Senator from California, the first thing I'll do is an audit. 
Where have the $30 billion the federal government has spent? As somebody who's been unsheltered, I cannot believe how he described his walk and touching and being there with the homeless. Come on, Mr. Mr. Garvey, I'm sorry, that was a total swing and a miss. That was a total whiff of an answer. Uh, and I say that, you know, credit where credit is due, you are a hell of a ball player. That was so weird. That was insane. I touched an icky homeless person. Aren't I humane? Did you do that? Can you say the same? Did you touch a homeless person? Have any of you been willing to risk getting cooties from them to touch them? I mean, this is very clearly a clueless rich dude who's running for the Senate because he's bored. But he has no core beliefs. In fact, he wouldn't even say whether or not he would vote for Donald Trump again. He's saying he'll make that decision later on whether or not he'll vote for Biden or Trump after he already voted for Trump twice. It's just so bizarre. He's not that bright, to be frank. And he's going to advance to the general probably with Adam Schiff, if nothing changes. So you kind of get why I feel frustrated here. But another reason why uh, this debate was just profoundly disappointing to me was because the moderators were absolutely god-awful. Almost every single question was framed from the right-wing perspective in a blue state, mind you, and they literally only gave the candidates 30 seconds to answer each question. So they asked this really big question that requires a broad, robust response, and then cut them off, and then complain that they're going over time constantly. I'm sorry, but how are you supposed to get the point across about any policy in 30 fucking seconds? I get that the goal was to cover a wide range of topics, but I'd much prefer less subjects and more time to answer those questions because you, you can't actually gauge how thoughtful these candidates are on certain policies if they have 30 seconds. It's genuinely insane. But I mean, either way, this debate and really the Senate race in general makes me feel really frustrated with our political system because if Democratic Party voters consistently again express that they want progressive policies, why do they keep continually supporting centrist politicians like Adam Schiff, who isn't a progressive and he's made that pretty clear throughout his career? But I mean, when they do support progressives like John Fetterman, for example, they end up being cheerleaders for genocide who suddenly oppose immigration. I mean, it just feels like our system is fundamentally incapable of producing good results regardless of what we do. So I don't know anymore. But at the end of the day, it comes down to voters. And if you really do want progressive policies, liberals, stop choosing corporate Democrats like Adam Schiff over progressive Democrats like Barbara Lee. Otherwise, don't complain when nothing changes. And I'm assuming they're going to vote for Adam Schiff and Steve Garvey. They're both going to advance and then Adam Schiff is going to win. But I mean, this is a deep blue state. So if you keep Voting for corporatism, don't be shocked when you get more corporatism, regardless if there's a D or an R in front of the name of the candidate who you're choosing. So what Maine is saying is, okay, if, if you're thinking about changing your gender and you don't want to tell your parents and you want to get it done, come to Maine, we'll take care of you. Am I missing anything? No, I, Maine is going to open the doors to this and, and open a door to kids who meet someone on TikTok. They get the idea that they need the surgery or hormone replacement therapy, and they're going to grab a bus or someone's going to come and pick them up and they're going to bring them to Maine and a parent is not going to do a thing about it.
Maine just proposed a bill that would make it the 15th state in the country to become a trans refugee state, which is a direct response, mind you, to laws criminalizing trans existence in states controlled by Republicans. Now, the clip that you just watched was Fox News' reaction to what they think the bill will do if it becomes law. But as you've probably already suspected, they are lying or, at a minimum, purposefully misrepresenting the law in order to push an anti-trans agenda. But they're not the only ones because conservative influencers on the Internet have already sounded the alarm about this bill before Fox News. For example, stochastic terrorist Chaya Raichik of Libs of TikTok claims new proposed bill in Maine says the state can take custody of a kid if the parents oppose sex change surgery and the chemical castration of their kids. Now, in response, transphobic conservatives boosted that post and encouraged their followers to take action, including Megyn Kelly, Trump Jr., and Riley Gaines, to name a few. So Chaya Raichik has constructed this narrative to not only get conservatives to incorrectly believe that minors are having sex change surgeries in the first place, but that parents are losing the right to say no to said surgeries when neither of these things are happening. But let's take a look at the bill. As Libs of TikTok pointed out, the bill does authorize the court to take temporary jurisdiction of a child, quote, because a child has been unable to obtain gender affirming health care or gender affirming mental health care. But you need to read the rest of the bill in order to get the specifics as to why a court might be able to do this. Quote, a court of the state has temporary emergency jurisdiction if the child is present in this state and the child has been abandoned or it is necessary in an emergency to protect the child because the child or sibling or parent of the child is subjected to or threatened with mistreatment or abuse or because the child has been unable to obtain gender affirming health care or gender affirming mental health care. Now, it's a bit confusing, but the key word here is jurisdiction. They are not saying that a court can remove a child from a non-affirming household simply because parents don't consent to gender-affirming health care. That's not what they're saying here. The child would still need parental consent for gender-affirming care. However, in instances where there is physical or mental abuse or abandonment, Maine can then remove the child or they can intervene on behalf of another state rather than simply just saying, look, this child who's being abused, it's not our problem. They're the problem of the state they came from, so they're the ones who should handle it. They're saying, we'll take responsibility here. Furthermore, if a child has not been able to receive gender-affirming care because it is banned in the state that they're from, this bill allows Maine's courts to give them jurisdiction over that particular case and basically ignore the laws in their home state where they came from. So, for example, if parents from Texas take their kids to Maine for gender-affirming health care, Texas cannot then intervene and block them from receiving said care because it's banned in Texas. This doesn't mean that Maine is overriding the will of non-affirming parents. That's not what this says. It is a line intended to address cross-state disputes so Republican-controlled states can't prosecute the residents of their state who travel across state lines for services that they've banned. And it's not just an issue when it comes to trans rights. Republicans are increasingly trying to prosecute residents who defy abortion bans by traveling out of state. So this is Maine basically proactively addressing that. And they're pretty explicit about it in this bill. For example, Section 2 reads, quote, It is the public policy of this state that an out-of-state arrest warrant for an individual based on violating another state's law against providing, receiving, or allowing a child to receive gender-affirming health care or gender-affirming mental health care is the lowest 
law enforcement priority. Now, Aaron Reed explains why this matters. Quote, importantly, this provision does not imply, as some conservative accounts have proclaimed, that the state will, quote, take away trans kids from non-affirming parents, as I've already said. Rather, this provision merely gives judges temporary jurisdiction over a kid present in the state. The state would still have to prove to a judge that a transgender teen is at risk of abuse or neglect if returned to their family in the exact same way the state would have to prove similar things about a cisgender kid. This provision is particularly relevant given the effort of some Republican-led states to extend their jurisdiction over minors no longer residing within their borders. For instance, Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton issued a subpoena for medical records from Seattle Children's Hospital. In the subpoena, the state demands data on all trans youth that have either temporarily left Texas to get care or permanently moved from the state. Such attempts to employ long-arm statutes could potentially usurp the jurisdiction of other states over those who have established residency or sought asylum within these states. Additionally, the bill would grant main jurisdiction in custody disputes where one parent resides in a state that prohibits gender-affirming care and the other lives in Maine where such care is not banned. Considering that many custody cases involve cross-state provision of care and the transfer of transgender youth between states with and without bans, this clause enables parents in Maine to present their case to a judge and argue that gender-affirming care is in the child's best interest. The bill does not require the judge to rule in favor of the parent. It merely allows the court to consider the argument. So I get it. It's complex. There's a lot of legal jargon in this bill. But if you're not qualified to interpret this correctly, then you certainly shouldn't fear monger about the specifics here within this bill. Chai Rajik is not qualified to interpret this, nor would she interpret this in a good faith way if she was qualified. But she made it seem as if this bill is going to allow kids to take weekend trips to Maine with their friends to get sex change operations in defiance of their parents. That's not what it does. But this is how Republicans are now unironically portraying this bill because of people like Chaya Rychik who lie about these laws. Now, if you don't believe me that everyone else is interpreting it this way, too, well, see for yourself, because even Fox News is going with what she said about this bill. OK, so after, let, let's say they, then they have the uh, the gender change. Uh <laughs> Are they going to go home to mom and dad? Because that would be quite a surprise. Yeah, I went to Maine, and this is how I spent my vacation. And it's, and then what happens? They may go home to mom and dad because they realize the mistake they've made, and they need the person who loves them to take care of them. Uh, but I think otherwise they're going to stay in the, the fantasy world that that they get involved in when they go through this gender transition, when they go through counseling that only looks at one option for their dysphoria or their fears or whatever they're searching for. Uh, the state of Maine has said, come to us, we'll take care of you. Yeah. I don't know how long that's going to last or how they'll go to school or, or anything. Well, uh, sorry, mom and dad. I know that you said no to the sex change, but it's done now. So what are you going to do? Thanks, Maine. I mean, this is such a cartoonishly idiotic portrayal of this bill that it's hard to imagine that even these conservatives believe their own bullshit. I have to imagine that they know that they're dishonest. They know that they're lying because you can't be that stupid. I'm sorry. You just you can't. Right. And did you notice the Chirons there? Quote, new main bill would allow out-of-state kids to get sex change surgeries. No, it wouldn't. Gender-affirming care for minors does not include sex change operations, you liars. Here's another one. Quote, Maine stripping parental rights? No, Maine is actually expanding parental rights to parents in states where Republicans took away their right to pursue gender-affirming care for their trans children. Here's another one. Maine trans bill slammed as, quote, state-sanctioned kidnapping. It's just so dishonest. 
See, when states like Texas label trans-affirming parents as child abusers and then try to remove trans children from these affirming homes, that right there is not state-sanctioned kidnapping. State-sanctioned kidnapping is when Maine says, hey, we'll accept trans refugees who've been targeted by their state. Listen, at this point, they are so far detached from reality, they might as well just say that Maine is trying to turn kids trans so they can force them to work in HRT factories to produce hormones for big trans. I mean, that's the level of absurdity that we're reaching here. And honestly, their rhetoric is close to that, even though I'm trying to be hyperbolic. But I mean, if you ever wonder why Republicans lie so much about trans people and trans youth, it is because the truth would hurt their cause. If they actually made their argument based on facts and science and statistics and data, they would never win over anyone. The viability of their hateful agenda hinges on people being misinformed about this topic. But so long as Republicans continue to criminalize trans existence, these types of laws are going to be much more needed and hopefully more common. But as these types of trans refugee laws become more common, you can expect more fear mongering and lies about them because, you know, it is a threat to their anti-trans agenda. But side note, since we're talking about Shia Raichik, one of the people leading the charge against the law, she's been appointed to Oklahoma's Library Review Committee, even though she lacks expertise on this issue, and she doesn't live in Oklahoma, nor does she have children. And look, maybe I'm crazy, but it seems like a bad idea to let hate-mongering transphobes like Chaya Raichik, who literally inspired bomb threats against children's hospitals, dictate what should be school policy. Her kids don't even go to that school. Her kids don't go in that district. She doesn't have kids, as far as I know. But I mean, keep in mind, as they impose their will on everyone else with book bans and bans on gender-affirming care, they are doing this under the guise of parental choice, which is just truly Orwellian. And Joy Reid of MSNBC confronted the Moms for Liberty co-founder about this contradiction on her show and asked why conservatives want to ban books for everyone when parents don't actually have to do that to still prevent their kids from reading material that they deem as inappropriate. Watch how this mom uh, responds. This mom for liberty responds. Let me show you a form. This is a form that can be obtained in Broward County, Florida. Okay. I'm going to show it to the audience and then I'm going to show it to you. Okay. This is called Can the opt. Yeah, second? please. I'm okay. going to hand it Thank to you. you so much. It's called the opt-out form. Okay. An opt-out form would allow any parent, because you said you are in favor of parental rights. I am. It would allow any parent to opt out of their child being able to take books out of the library without their parents' permission. Okay. So that Moms for Liberty, why not advocate that every school in America have an opt-out form so that a parent who doesn't want their child to access a book like All Boys Aren't Blue, right. that they can make that choice? Because then each parent, including a liberal parent, a black parent, a parent who wants their child to read a book about African-American history, we they want, get their we want children to read books about African-American history. Why not just American opt history, out so. for yourself rather than tell other parents what they can and cannot? First have of all, I think what you're talking about here is a wonderful step in the right direction. Um, we should be having conversations about this. This is about local control. Mm -hmm. A lot of these decisions are made at, made at the local school board level. Mm -hmm. And that's where these decisions should be made. And there should be vibrant conversations sure. about what's happening in our public schools and what kids have access to. Joy, however, mm -hmm. maybe we could just put all the books with all the graphic sexual content. The dildos, You're not the just, rape, the I'm sorry. Let's do I'm a, so sorry. Let's do excuse a back me, room. Excuse me. Let's excuse put a curtain up me. in the library First of like all, they used hold to on. do. One moment. The video one moment. Stores. Remember the when we were little moms and you would go to the video The books that moms and they put those the books, books that moms for liberty with pornography the books that 
I know that you. I, I've. Seen, we could just do that. In I a public have seen library. tapes of is what Moms for Liberty does, and you all go into school board meetings Joy, and you read graphic stuff. Genuine conversation. No, it's not. There is a. There's America Je- used to understand that there was beloved, something called age appropriate content. Right, and here's my we question again. Again, on movies. again, again. Ruby Bridges Goes to School is on the list of books that Moms for Liberty has attempted absolutely, to have removed. Absolutely not. It absolutely is. Let me ask about the people who are making the decision for their parents, because you have not answered yet why a liberal parent or an African-American parent. We have parents my, who are Democrats no, no, no. who are members One of moment, our organization. But you're still trying to make decisions for all the kids. Wow. I've never seen this before. It's called an opt out form, you say. Wow. I think this is a step in the right direction. Hmm, I've never seen this. It's never existed before. These were available when I was in elementary school. Anyways, despite seeing this and saying it's a good idea, she still says, "Mm, actually, I still want to make decisions for other parents. I want to impose my will on them, regardless if I don't have to do that to shield my kid from seeing things that I think are inappropriate. It's amazing, isn't it? They don't actually believe in parental rights. This is all about the imposition of their will on all of us, regardless if we like it or not. And their will is to criminalize trans people out of existence, as evidenced by the fact that laws pertaining to trans existence are getting increasingly draconian. For example, a bill out of Utah could penalize trans people with six months in jail for simply using the wrong bathroom. And this bill, by the way, is advancing quickly and could pass soon, according to journalist Darren Reed. I mean, this is where we're at. They might claim that their crusade against trans people is guided by some philosophy like parental rights or protecting women. But at the end of the day, Those are nothing more than thinly veiled pretenses to eliminate people that they've deemed unworthy of existing. That's what this is all about. But if these bigots got what they wanted, unfortunately for them, they would be prosecuted with all the LGBTQ plus people they're judging as well. Right. If they got the Christian theocracy that they are longing for, they wouldn't hold it to scrutiny as well. And this was another thing that the Moms for Liberty co-founder was confronted about by Joy Reid. Here are some of the parents that are filing uh, or some of the, the, the your advocates. Mm-hmm. Bridget Ziegler, the Moms for Liberty co-founder, the wife of the recently ousted Florida Republican Party chairman, Christian Ziegler, who allegedly was involved in threesomes, same sex threesomes. Um, Mrs. Ziegler was a, was removed from the school board at which she was a leader. Um, you've had she wasn't Lauren, removed from the school board. OK, you have Lauren DePaula. Um, she was making book ban requests in Alachua County, but then records show that she and her husband didn't live there. They'd sold their home in that county. Carrie Blair in Tennessee, who was um, arrested for property theft charges after allegedly stealing from Target, skip scanning in Target. Why should those three people get to make decisions about what other children should be able to read? Other ch- parents' children should be able to read. Do you know that I served as a school board member from 2016 to Are you going to answer my question? Yeah, I'm because going we to. don't have an endless time. Joy, I'm going to answer your question, but Mm -hmm. I need you to understand that when I was an elected representative, I would sit on that dais. Mm -hmm. And how dare I, sitting there as an elected representative, judge a parent when they would come to the podium to speak and advocate for their child? Well, Joy, we're not going to judge these folks. Do we seem like the judgmental type to you? Yeah, you kind of do. (laughs) I mean, it's astonishing to me that they can be so blatantly dishonest and deceitful. But I mean, in conclusion, We can defeat these people, and our greatest weapon against these demons is information and education, because once the general population realizes that their concern trolling about parental rights and protecting women from trans people is all just a facade, they lose support for their genocidal transphobic agendas. So keep educating people and informing people, and that's how we beat these ghouls. Want more? 
visit humanistreport.com for links to our full catalog of videos on YouTube, Means TV, and Facebook. You can also find audio versions of the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, iHeartRadio, and other major podcast platforms. And before you go, consider supporting the show on Patreon or through YouTube memberships. You get early access to most videos, invites to monthly live chats with Mike, and you'll be thanked by name at the start of the next episode. There are other ways to support the show. You can like, subscribe, turn on notifications, and share our content on social media. Thank you for watching.